All right, well, it's great to be with you tonight again. It's wonderful singing with you. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and the message tonight is called The Good Shepherd King. The Good Shepherd King. We'll be reading John 10, verses 1 through 21. Give everybody a moment to find that. John chapter 10. Alright, I hear pages sliding down. This is John 10, verses 1 through 21. This is God's Word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, this ends the reading of God's word. I invite you to pray as we come before his, his word tonight. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us to, to let your word dwell in our hearts richly. You tell us to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace, Lord, in our hearts. Thankful for the grace that is ours in Christ. 
And having done that, Father, now we turn to your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it, that you would show us Jesus and that you would change us to make us more like him, our good, faithful shepherd king. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say, right, that we all want to live the abundant life. We want to live life to the full. We want to live the best life, the, the blessed life. Books line bookstore shelves on this topic. There's podcasts and TV reality shows and any number of things that, that offer, at least so they say, the abundant life. The celebrity uh, Facebook profiles that showcase some version, this version or that version of the abundant life. But amidst all of these different offers and versions and presentations of of what it means to live a full life, an abundant life, life to the full, what does living the abundant life really look like? It's a question we need to ask. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. I imagine many of you, for many of you, that's the case. Maybe you were raised in the faith. But once what once filled you with just a childlike wonder and awe has become, I don't know, kind of boring ho-hum, lackluster, can happen to all of us. And maybe you went looking for that abundant life elsewhere. And as you did, you found that it was all empty promises. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're still searching for the abundant life because you've seen that nothing else that promises to satisfy actually does. Well, if that's you tonight, and I think all of us can find ourselves in that place, then this is a beautiful chapter in God's Word to look at. It's beautiful to see just what the Good Shepherd, not not just the Good Shepherd, but the Good Shepherd King, as we're going to see, just what it is that He gives His sheep, and at what great cost to Himself. It's really hard to see that with any amount of clarity, and to see it as anything but just breathtakingly beautiful. That's what we're going to see tonight in John chapter 10. And if you want to know who Jesus is, one of the best places to start is John's gospel. Eight times in in John's gospel, Jesus says the words, I am, and then he describes himself eight different ways. And here in our passage tonight in John 10, we find two of those I am statements. And interestingly, in the gospel of John, you have three before, two in our text, and three after. So it's this central passage in his gospel, and it draws into light Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament promises. It, it contrasts false shepherds with the good shepherd, and it shows the failure of religion that isn't interested in redemption. It's a beautiful passage. It's, it's a beautiful figure of speech, is what John calls it. He says Jesus gave this figure of speech to the Pharisees, but they didn't understand it. And I'm kind of glad they didn't, in a way, only in this way, because when they don't understand what Jesus is saying, he goes on to unpack it again. And when he does, that's for our benefit. And we have some of the richest, most beautiful statements of the gospel in that further elaboration of this figure of speech, this explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So I want you to see something tonight in John 10, 1 through 21. There's so much that we could dig out of this gold mine of a passage. But I want you to see this. Because Jesus is the good shepherd king who gives his life in our place, he sacrifices his life in our place so that we can have abundant life. 
then we must hear his voice and follow him. Because Jesus is the good shepherd king who sacrifices himself in our place to give us abundant life, what are we to do? We must hear his voice and follow him. And there's really two key truths about Jesus that I want to look at with you and unpack them as we look at John 10. First, who is the shepherd king? Who is this shepherd king? And, and in second place, how is he the good shepherd king? So who he is and how is he the good shepherd king? So first, let's think about that, that question. Who is the shepherd king? And of course, the right answer is the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Right. That's always a safe bet when somebody asks that question, speaking from God's word. But we're going to see a little bit more than that. I want to look and see how this theme gets traced all the way from the first pages of the Bible up until now. And that'll be really brief, but I think it'll be really helpful for for us to see. Um, Because when we think of a shepherd, I've said that he's the shepherd king. And you might be thinking, what in the world is a shepherd king? Because for us, when we think of shepherd and king, we think of two different things, right? They're two very different things. On the one hand, we might think of a, well, a shepherd. It takes us out to the countryside, out to the rolling hills with a shepherd carefully tending his flock, maybe rising to to defend his sheep every once in a while from predators. But then when we think of king, that's a whole different picture, right? Maybe in our minds, on our parts of the world, our side of the world, we think of well, I don't know, maybe a, a majestic figure with a golden crown on his head and a long billowy robe, right? That, so shepherd and king don't seem like they're really that closely related, but that wasn't always the case. In fact, in, the, in ancient times, not just in ancient Israel, but in the nations surrounding Israel, shepherd and king were really closely related. The king was seen as a shepherd over the people. And in some small way, the shepherd was thought of as a king, at least in the sense that he was the he was the owner of his flock. He was the ruler of his flock. He was the one who defended his flock. He was the one who cared for and provided for and watched out for his flock. And all of that is what a king does for his people. Right. And so you have these ancient kings describing even themselves as shepherds. So you have this idea of a shepherd king that's really foreign to us. But it's really, really important to know as we get into John chapter 10. Let's really quickly walk through this. You know, sometimes we look at the Bible and we may flip open to a passage and we read it in isolation and we fail to get the big picture. The Bible is one big story that leads to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And they're all of the themes, all of the different stories, all of the different trails you can follow lead to one place to Jesus. So let's look at very briefly how from the very beginning of this book. To John chapter 10, we see the good shepherd king promised. And then finally he gets here. He arrives in John chapter 10. So from the early parts of the Old Testament, if you know a little bit of the story, you have Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then you have Moses after that. And God alone during that time is considered the shepherd. The shepherd is God himself. For example, when Jacob, Abraham's great grandson, blesses Joseph, he says, He says to God, or he calls God, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, describing God as the shepherd in Psalm 77, 20, speaking of the days of Moses, the psalmist says, you led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. So this picture of God leading his people like a flock, God is the shepherd at this point, right? 
It's God himself, the truly divine shepherd king. But then something interesting happens as we go through the story. We get to another page in the history of of this great story about Jesus. And we see that the children of Israel had rulers, human rulers, human kings. And during that time, you start having this idea of shepherd applied to the kings. But in a very general, a very unspecific, maybe a generic sort of way. They're sort of like a shepherd of the people. But there's one king in the story that gets spoken of. As the shepherd like God. One king. And that's David. He's the royal shepherd that is appointed by God to lead the people. You might remember what did David do before he was anointed king? He was a shepherd. Some of you know the story. He was the last pick that Samuel thought would never be the king. He was the little shepherd boy. And all of the other brothers paraded before Samuel. And God kept saying, no, not this one, not that one. And finally, a shepherd boy walks in and he gets anointed king. And that's important. That's not just a throwaway piece of the story. It plays into how the Bible points us to Jesus. So God is the shepherd king. And then David, this shepherd boy turned anointed king, he picks up that same title as the shepherd over God's people. So that's interesting, but it gets more interesting because this idea of God, the shepherd king and David His appointed shepherd king, it gets taken a step further. All throughout the Old Testament, the way that David gets spoken of gets expanded and stretched and it gets bigger until it's finally clear that no human person at all, no no individual could fill these shoes. There's something about the way the Bible talks about David that leads you to think of think beyond David to something else, something else that's coming, something else that's promised. For example, far after David is dead and gone, he's buried. The story of David is over. God says through his prophet Ezekiel, listen to what he says. He promises this to the people in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And later, just a couple chapters later, the same prophet says that David will be the people's shepherd forever. King David couldn't be the people's shepherd forever. He's dead. He's gone. So who is this talking about? Ezekiel what? That's Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. So as you see this, you see that there's something beyond David. And really the the point is that there's going to be a a greater David. There's going to be a Davidic Messiah, a promised savior of the world who would be from the line of David, a divine shepherd king like David, who would shepherd God's people forever. And in John chapter 10, our story tonight, this promised David, this shepherd king that would come says, I'm here. He announces himself. He says, I've arrived. The theme of the shepherd king that starts all the way back in Genesis has finally blossomed in the person of Jesus. He's finally here. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's saying more than I am like a shepherd. I care for my flock like a shepherd. I'm gentle like a shepherd. No, he's saying I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd king that was always promised. I'm the shepherd king that was always pointed to throughout the entire story. I'm finally here. He's saying that he's God himself. He's saying that he's God, the son, that he's the new divine shepherd king who will shepherd God's people. 
So you see in John chapter 9, the reason Jesus goes to this story, when we, when we started reading John 10, it's just out of the blue. He starts telling the story. But the reason being is in John chapter 9, just before our story, there was a blind man that Jesus healed. And he was badly mistreated by the religious leaders of Israel. He was badly treated by them. He was horribly just abused. They, they really, the picture here is that they don't fit the bill as good shepherd kings. They're more interested in themselves than in looking out for the flock. They take advantage of the flock. They don't care about them at all. They brutalize them instead of bless them. And here comes Jesus and he says, he is the good shepherd king. He's the promised shepherd king. So that's who he is. That's who the shepherd king is. But I want to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at another question. And that's how is Jesus not like the other rulers of Israel? How is he the good shepherd king? And the answer to that question is threefold. First, Jesus knows us intimately. He knows us intimately. Second, we'll see that Jesus gives us abundant life. And finally, we'll see that that intimacy and abundant life is only ours. It only comes to us because Jesus sacrificed his life for us. So first, let's see why Jesus is the good shepherd king. And the first thing we find is that he's the good shepherd king because he knows us intimately. If you were listening to what Jesus says in John 10, several times he uses the language of my own. I know my own. My own know me. My own come in. I call my sheep. There's a powerful old American preacher, George Whitfield, and he said, Oh, blessed be God for that little, dear, great word, my. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus says of you, my sheep, my sheep. And he calls you by name. When we think of a shepherd leading his sheep, I don't know what comes to your mind. Maybe you think of a border collie running around, barking on the heels of the sheep, driving them in front of the shepherd. Maybe you think of the old movie, Babe the Pig. The pig's running around, the farmer, that'll do, pig. And we think of driving the sheep ahead, and it's, it's, but it's not like that in, in the ancient days that Jesus is, is working in and where he's speaking. The shepherd would come outside of the sheepfold and he would maybe whistle or hum or something just very distinct to him. And the sheep would recognize their shepherd. And they would all trot out of the sheepfold and follow the shepherd. And Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't hum. He doesn't whistle. He calls you by name. And you hear his voice. And you come out and follow him. And can you imagine that? Jesus, the Son of God, born a human being, living among us, and calling you by name. That's intimacy, isn't it? That's intimacy. You see, Jesus doesn't just prop open the door and hope that some wander out and follow him. If you've been around sheep at all, you know sheep aren't very smart. That's not going to happen. And I think we probably fit the bill as well. It's interesting the Bible calls us sheep. Because if we were left to ourselves to wander around and somehow find Jesus, what happens? We don't find him. We wander everywhere but where he would find us. But that's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't do that. He says that he knows his own. He knows his own. And that's much more than just an awareness, a knowledge of his own. I I think it's really helpful the way this has been defined. It's been defined as a gracious, redemptive commitment. That's what it means when Jesus knows his sheep. It's a gracious, redemptive commitment. 
If you're a Christian, it's because long before you knew the voice of your shepherd, Jesus knew you in a redemptive way, in a committed way, in a gracious way. And he came and called you by name. He came to die for each and every one of his sheep, committed to them, loving them, pursuing them, calling them by name. He doesn't miss a single sheep, in case you're worried about that. There won't be 90 and 9 sheep when all is said and done and the last day comes. Jesus gets all his sheep. We can put it this way. Not one, dry, not one drop of Christ's blood is ever wasted. And not one of his sheep is ever lost because he knows you. And he calls you by name. And he calls you without missing a single one. There's, there's just this intimacy. I'm just struck by this. It's incredible. It's this compelling intimacy that no false God, no false religion, no false offer of the abundant life could ever offer. It's this intimacy that none of these false shepherds of the people could ever engage in. But this is the intimacy that our shepherd gives. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. It's an intimacy that it's too good to be true, right? But it is true. And the reason it's too good to be true is because you know you and I know me. And we know just how unlovable we are. Just too good to be true. How could Jesus give us this intimacy? Just over a month ago, we had Valentine's Day, right? And in a lot of places, love was in the air. And that's fine. Romance is fine. But there's something much deeper, much more powerful, much more moving than even that. And it's true love. Amen. True love. That's what makes tears well up in our eyes. Because what is true love? True love is when somebody knows you for who you are and loves you anyway. True love is when somebody knows who you are and loves you anyway. And we all know ourselves better than anyone else, right? And we know just what it is when somebody loves us truly, loves us completely, loves us knowing who we are. That's what makes the love of a spouse, of a dear friend, of a father or a child so such a beautiful gift. Because we don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, how much more so with God's love for us? God knows us more than we know ourselves. That's a scary thought. But God loves us truly. It's an intimacy. Martin Luther captured this beautifully. I love what he says. He says, Now what is this that Christ says? And he calls them by name and leads them out. He says, They all hear the melodious voice of Christ. That is the gospel preaching of one faith, baptism, hope, and salvation which they all possess equally. No one has more than another. And Christ begins to call them, all of them who are in the same grace, saved in the same way, He calls them each individually by unique names, just as the shepherd describes or names each sheep individually. One brownie, the other blackie, or whatever He pleases. I just find that amazing. Jesus calls us by name, uniquely, individually. Sheep that struggles with doubt and fear. Sheep that's wounded by addiction. Sheep that's far too headstrong and proud. Sheep that has a terrible temper tantrum problem. Jesus knows each and every one of us by our name, and he calls us uniquely, lovingly, committedly to follow him. 
He knows all of your emotional bruises. He knows all of your stubborn, ugly spiritual warts. And he still calls you by name. He calls you to give you abundant life where these ugly spiritual blemishes are more and more removed, where these emotional bruises are healed by his balm, where our headstrong ways are all corrected, all by the grace of Jesus. So that's one reason Jesus is the good shepherd king. But there's another. Jesus is also the good shepherd king because he gives us abundant life. He gives us abundant life. So what does this abundant life that the good shepherd king give actually look like? We, we, we have this idea of what it might look like. But what does the Bible say that it actually looks like? I'm going to take a step back again to what God promised so long ago in Ezekiel 34. I won't read the passage just for the sake of time. But there we see what the abundant life will look like. God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in, in the language and, and concepts of that day to that people way back thousands of years ago, he describes what this abundant life that Jesus will bring will look like. He says that he says that he promises to gather the scattered flock into his place, the heavenly Zion, the church of Jesus Christ. He says that injured and the weak will be comforted. The rebellious will be destroyed. There will be, there will be no savage beasts. And interestingly, that was a curse for people if they broke the covenant that God had made with Israel. And they broke the covenant over and over again. But God says, even still, you covenant breakers, there will be no savage beasts. There will no longer be any faithless leaders to tear them apart and destroy them. A new shepherd is going to be given. A shepherd that will make all things new. Jesus says in another I am statement that we see in John 10. Remember, he said, I am the door. He said, I am the door in verse nine. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. That's the abundant life. It's life where our wounds are healed. It's life where the curse of the law is lifted. It's life where guilt and shame over sin is removed. It's life where justice reigns. It's life where we have everything that we need for life and godliness. It's life under the sovereign rule of the divine, promised, good shepherd king, Jesus. Does that abundance sound better than what you see on TV? Does it sound better than having your name in the Hollywood Walk of Fame? The most famous you can ever be is that your good shepherd knows you by name and calls you out. Absolutely right. That's the abundant life that we need. But how does this intimacy and abundant life come to us? How do we actually get it? How do we actually get welcomed into it? How how is it purchased for us? Well, that's the last thing I want you to see in John 10. And it's this. Jesus is finally the good shepherd king because he sacrifices his life for us to give us life. I want you to hear this really beautiful prayer from about three or four hundred years after Christ's death. And the prayer goes like this. O Christ, good shepherd, who gave your life for your flock, you went looking for the lost lamb over mountain and hill and found it. After finding it, you carried it on this, those same shoulders that were to bear the wood of the cross and taking it along with you. You brought it back to the life of heaven. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus doesn't just call us by name, but like a good shepherd, he takes his staff and his crook and he goes and he finds the lost sheep. And he carries it back on his shoulders, back to the life of heaven. And the way he does that is by carrying the cruel cross that we deserve on his shoulders. 
suffering and dying and giving his life, sacrificing himself in our place. Remember what we said earlier about these faithless shepherds, the ones that mistreated the blind man. And over and over we see it. They just don't care about the flock. And Jesus uses the picture of robbers and thieves to describe them. But he uses another he uses another picture. Not only is that the mere opposite of the good shepherd, there's another mere opposite of the good shepherd in this story. And it's if you caught it when we read, it's the hired hand, the hired hand it's the help. It's the, the hired laborer. And what does Jesus say about the hired hand? He says when the wolf starts circling the fold, starts growling and starts threatening to grab the sheep. What does the hired hand say? I don't get paid enough to do this job. Right. And the hired hand is out of there. There was a time several years ago where I grew up uh, down in Mexico when the, the wars between the different drug lords and the government had gotten so bad that all of the county police walked off the job. They said, we don't get paid enough to do this job. And things got really bad, and even in the village that my family still lives in. People had to fend for themselves because there was no one to defend them. But Jesus' sheep never have to fend for themselves. He's always there to defend them because he isn't a hired hand. He never leaves his sheep defenseless in the face of danger. Jesus, he says, look at verse 11, if you're there in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. See, in John's gospel, Jesus is called the savior of the world. Right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And John tells us what he means by this. In verse 16, if you see in verse 16, he says something that would have just shocked the Pharisees that were listening at the time. It shouldn't have. It was something that's all along in the story. But they had become so self-centered and so self-focused that they thought it was just being a good Jew that got you in. That's what made you a sheep. But Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. You see, when Jesus comes, the definition of God's people isn't one little nation anymore. The boundaries get blown out the side so that people in far off, distant, once pagan lands like Ramona, California, can be called God's sheep. I have sheep that are not of this fold. We can see him pointing across the oceans to California where one day the gospel would come. I will bring them in also, he says. John eleven fifty one to 52 says, Jesus would die for the nation, Israel, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, there's no sacrifice greater than this. There's no love deeper. There's no compassion more tender than Jesus' sacrifice to gather his scattered sheep, all of his sheep, all across the globe into the abundant life of the sheepfold. It's compassion, it's love, it's mercy, it's a sacrifice in our place because we're sinners. We need it, but we don't deserve it. None of us deserve that mercy. That's important to understand. It's important to understand if we're going to get the beauty of the goodness of the Good Shepherd, if we're going to see the glorious news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's first to understand that we don't deserve the good news of Jesus We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve this redemptive commitment and love that we've talked about. What do we deserve? We deserve to be left to the wolves. But Christ throws himself at what threatens to destroy his own so that we can be delivered. 
We're rebels who deserve to suffer for all eternity. But instead of punishing the rebels, the king comes down, steps down from glory and gives his own life to win the battle and to claim us as his victory prize. That's the sacrifice that Jesus made. What kind of a king does that? The good shepherd king, Jesus, does that. So how do you know then if you're one of Christ's sheep? How do I know if I'm hearing his voice calling? How do I know if he laid down his life for me? Here's the thing. If you see this love on display in this story, if you see that the good shepherd, the good shepherd king calls his sheep by name, that he gives them abundant life, that he gives them life from the grave, really, by his own sacrifice, and you say, I want that. I don't deserve it, but I want it. I know that my sins stand in the way, but if Christ will have me, I want to be his sheep. I see that sin broke his body on the cross. I see that sin is what put him in the grave. Sin is what pierced his hands and feet. And I recognize that I'm a sinner, but I want to follow him. If that's your heart tonight, then that is the voice of the good shepherd calling your name. That is the voice of the good shepherd calling. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And you come when you hear that call and the eyes of your heart are open to see Jesus for who he is. So what's the answer? What what, what are we to do? Come. That's what Jesus says. He says, come, come to the good shepherd king. Repent of being a stubborn sheep up to your neck in sin. You can't pull yourself out. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to him by faith, when you believe in him, he reaches down and pulls you out of that mire and carries you back to the life of heaven, into his family, into his fold. So come to Jesus. But there is something else I want you to see about the sacrifice of the good shepherd king. The sacrifice is once for all. His, his sacrifice in our place on the cross is once for all, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. If we only look at Jesus' life and his death in our place, then we haven't seen the full gospel. We have to look from the cross to the empty tomb. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. And he says, I've been given that authority by my Father. When it comes to our redemption, the Father and the Son are working out of love and commitment for one another and love and commitment for a chosen flock to secure their salvation. The Father loves the Son and he promises to give the Son his sheep if he will live and die as their substitute. If he will live the life that they could never live. We all agree, right? We could never live that life. And he dies the death that they deserve. And I hope we agree that we deserve that. But Jesus came and his agreement was to live his life in our place and to die the death that we deserve. But then death isn't the end game. Death's not the final chapter in that story. That's what Jesus says here. He says, I willingly lay down my life. If I lay it down, having lived out the life that my people couldn't live and die the death that they deserve, then I rise to the reward. I rise to the reward. The Father's given me that authority. When that life is taken up again, then Jesus receives the prize. He receives the reward for his faithfulness. And that reward is you. That reward is you. You are the prize. When Jesus thinks of the abundant life, 
purified of that? What is the abundant life for Jesus? Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. The joy set before him was you, his people. You are the reward. You are the abundant life. When Jesus thinks about what the abundant life looks like. And because of that, we can sum up the abundant life that he gives in one word. Jesus. Because Jesus sees us as his joy and reward. Our abundance. Our life lived to the full. The best life. The blessed life is Jesus. It's living with him. It's the resurrection life that he gives you see, resurrection, it, it seals the deal. Like I said, you don't have the gospel without resurrection. It seals the deal. It declares the covenant fulfilled. It declares Jesus victorious. And it declares those who believe free, absolutely free in him. He willingly submits to the Father. And then we just freely receive it. All of grace because of his obedient sacrifice and his triumph over the grave. When all that is done, the blessings of the new covenant in his blood overflow in abundance to his sheep. Bought and paid for, not by us, but by his blood, the blood of our good shepherd king slain for us, secured now and forever by his resurrection from the grave, his triumph over death. Well, how did the Jews, the Pharisees that were listening to this story, how did they respond? How did they respond to his claims to be the good shepherd king? And his promise of life and abundance by his sacrifice. Well, verse 19 says, again, there was a division. It's happened before and it happens again in John 10. Look at verses 20 and 21. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. And thinking back to the previous story, they say, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So as is so often the case in the Gospels, the disbelief of some and the fence-sitting of others is really a challenge to us. Some say, forget it. They reject it out of hand. He's insane. He's a lunatic. He's raving mad. He's demon-possessed. Not going to listen to him. And the others say, hmm, could a man who gave sight to the blind really be possessed by a demon? Could he really say all of these things that are so beautifully reaching our hearts? But they, they're not sure. It's pretty noncommittal. So then the question comes to us. How will we respond to these claims? Will we say that's nuts? Life and abundance can't be found in Jesus. It's found elsewhere and I'm not even going to listen to this. Will we stop and say, I don't know. Or if you hear the voice of your good shepherd calling you, Speaking these words of life because he laid his life down in your place and saying, come, come and I will carry you back to the life of heaven. Will you come? That's the question for us. And I hope you will come. Jesus is the good shepherd king. Unlike these other self-interested religious leaders, and we know there's many in our day today that never fulfill their promises. Jesus carries out everything needed for us to receive mercy and grace. He gives us abundant life by laying down his life in our place. He loves the Father and the Father loves him. And through that love, you are being pursued to be brought into that fold. So because he's the good shepherd king who gives his life in our place so that we can receive abundant life, there's only one thing we can do. Whether it's for the first time or for the 500th time, hear his voice, follow him, come to Jesus and find life in him. Let's pray.
Father, we confess that we are stubborn sheep. And so often, Lord, we hear your voice calling, but we walk the other way. I pray tonight, Lord, that that would not be the case. All of us, Lord, from the one who has been in the faith the longest to the newest to one who has not ever heard your voice called, but maybe hearing you now, we pray that all would follow you. Pray that you would break through the hearts of stone, Lord, and show us our need for the good shepherd king, one who does not flee in front of danger, but gives his life, throws himself to the wolves so that we can be forgiven. And our good shepherd, Lord, didn't stay dead, but he's living and reigning. And it's in the name of our living good shepherd king we pray. Amen.